1: Welcome, 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 my friend, to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. And today's guest on the show is Martin Jacobson, who has racked up over $17 million in poker cashes in his live MTT career. His career highlights include winning the 2014 World Series of Poker main event for $10 million. Going to be hard to top that one on the highlight reel. An 800K score at the 2013 $111,111 buy in one drop high roller. A 762K runner up finish at the 2011 EPT Deauville main event. And if you'll notice, Martin's World Series of Poker main event victory came after his other two biggest scores which means dude's been operating at an extremely high level for a very long time, and it also begs the following question. How does conquering the Mount Everest of poker challenges affect your motivation moving forward? Martin shares his thoughts about how he stayed hungry in our conversation, as well as revealing just how razor-close his poker career was to never happening at all. In today's episode, you're going to learn how getting ghosted might be one of the biggest blessings to ever happen to Martin, the story of Martin's fateful WSOP main event run, what the future holds for the great Martin Jacobson, and much, much more. So without any further ado, I bring to you one of the top players of his generation and an amazing, amazing human being, the 2014 WSOP main event world champion, Martin Jacobson. Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Is, is it morning? It's it's eleven thirty for me. I don't know what time it is for you right now. It's
0: it's three thirty over here in London. Uh yeah. so no, not quite <laughs> I, I wake up late usually, but not this late anymore.
1: Yeah, not not this late. What time do you normally wake up?
0: I try to get up about I've actually been waking up without an alarm clock around nine or, or ten PM or <laughs> nine, ten AM. Yeah. Um which I guess is, you know, a sign of getting older, I suppose. (laughs) Yep. Because normally, like in my younger days, at least, when I was staying up playing online all night, I would sleep until 12. Like I would struggle to get out of bed before noon, uh, usually.
1: Yeah, I I certainly remember myself waking up at 3 or 4 a.m. after like playing until 7 or 8 a.m. at a home game or whatever and just crashing and sleeping my life away, and now, like you said, it's a uh, we're getting older. You know, i I go to sleep without, I go to sleep on my own. I'm naturally tired at about 10 p.m. I passed out by 11, and then at like 7:30, my body's like, "All right, let's go." Whereas That's for a, right. for a decade, I like if I saw 7:30 a.m., it was because I was awake from the night before. I never saw 7:30 a.m.
0: Yeah, same. Uh, but like that's how it should be, right? Like I feel the difference as well, like in my mood, in my energy levels. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is definitely the way to go. It's just a shame that I'm still playing online tournaments every Sunday and whenever there's an online series. So by then, you kind of force to uh, switch your your sleeping schedule and um, make your body used to staying up late because obviously by Three, four, sometimes five, six, seven a.m. That's when you have to be the sharpest because that's when you're at the final table and, and making the des- decisions for for all the money. So, uh, yeah, it's a fine balance because
1: yeah, keep going back and forth. Yeah, it, it's it's tough, and you have to right. Like I mean, in the MTT grind, you've got no choice because, like you said, that's where the majority of the money is won and lost in those moments at four and five a.m. And so you know, you just have to naturally be prepared to execute and play at a high level, even when you're extremely fatigued. And I think one thing that I miss, though, I will say this, I miss the feeling of 2am. Just being awake, where everybody's asleep in the world and the air is cool. I always really enjoyed that feeling when I was playing poker all night and staying up just it's very peaceful for me. So I do miss the two a.m.s, but I don't know that I miss them so badly that I want to start staying up until (laughs) two (laughs) a.m. Yeah, I say it's
0: hardly worth it. It's funny. That's like what the fighters are saying too. You know, boxers when they are running in the middle of the night. I remember Tyson used to say, used to go for runs uh, when he knew that his opponents were sleeping. So, kind of felt like got an edge by staying up later than than everyone else. And I think a lot of fighters, like even
1: Mayweather, does that too. well, this, the, yeah. si- the science is out. Sleep is important. That's just, <laughs> just. <laughs> yeah, okay. For sure, getting your your
0: seven or eight hours or whatever you need, I think definitely outweighs that feeling of superiority of staying up that late. If anything, uh, I feel much better when I wake up super early. Like if I'm up by seven or eight a.m., I'm like king of the world because it's so unusual for me. Like that's super early for me. So, but ideally, like. Once I'm done with poker or online poker um, and I can sort of set my own schedule, like i would like to see myself waking up at five or six uh, or uh, very late at 7 a.m.
1: Okay. So we're going to get there. We're going to get to what that means, you know, uh, when you transition outside of poker eventually. And for now let's kind of, let's go, go all the way back as far as we can go to the beginning of your career and Beginning your poker journey, could you tell me the story of how you got involved with playing cards?
0: Uh, I got involved, uh, I guess, like most people, uh, started watching poker on TV. Um, it was during the poker boom; poker was everywhere. Um, they would air the like in Sweden where I lived. They would air the WPT and um, I guess WSOP uh, like final tables and, and big cash games. Um, like in the middle of the night. And even back then, um, I've always like stayed up kind of late. So I would kind of hit that time slot and watch TV at those, on those hours. So, Uh, and straight away, I got intrigued by the game, you know, like hearing the commentators. uh, And I realized that there was a lot of strategy behind it. It wasn't just gambling. So,
1: How old were you? How old were you? What was your path in life at this moment?
0: Right, I was. Um,
1: it was while I was
0: in high school, so I would have been like sixteen, seventeen, maybe a little bit older, maybe like seventeen, eighteen.
1: Yeah, and what what year were you watching the WPT? I, I'm not sure how old you are now. To- <laughs> oh, sorry, I'm 33 now. So, um, uh, was that 16 years ago? 16 years. The math tells me that's 2005 ish. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right around there. So high school, um, 2005. Yeah, I guess, so I guess in high, it was, high school. It was probably. Like, sorry, go ahead.
0: Sorry, it was like the
1: end of the poker booth. Like I, was,
0: I entered kind of late. I, I think in the US, for example, like most uh, my friends and the the people I talked to, they said that they started sort of like 2003, like 2004. Uh, so I only really discovered. I guess it's uh, that's just the product of living in Europe, where everything sort of comes <laughs> comes a bit later. Um, I think that the original poker boom started in the U.S., right, with, with Chris Moneymaker winning in 2003.
1: Yeah, 2000, 2003, but, I mean, look, finding it in 2005 while you're in high school, that's still pretty early on in the game. You didn't miss the boom. Um, you're, like, just a year later, uh, and you recognize the strategy aspect of it. Were you a competitive kid growing up? What really was it about poker that just kind of grabbed you?
0: I don't know if I, I was that competitive growing up. I played a some sports like I played hockey growing up, and um once that became kind of too competitive for me, like it was quite a high level in Sweden where even at an early age like I, think I was twelve when i I quit, <laughs> and we had you were required to show up to six practices a week by the age of twelve uh so it was kind of like all in or, or, or nothing and at that point in my life I know was just other things I wanted to do as well I, I wasn't as dedicated to hockey as maybe some of my team members so I, I switched to indoor floorball and enjoyed that, it was a lot more casual and, uh, like similar concept but a lot faster and easier to to get to it didn't require as much equipment and stuff.
1: So you, you switched to indoor floorball and did you uh like how long did you, how long were you involved in sports um kind of leading up to i guess the discovery in poker and you know i guess what was your plan in life in high school did you have a plan in life because i guess that that's a better question because in high school i had zero plan for life i had no earthly idea what it was that i wanted to pursue so did you even, did you have a plan for life when you discovered poker
2: Yes,
0: I did. At that point I did. Because when I was in elementary school when I was 14, 15, that's when you have to make a decision of like, okay, what what do you want to study now? Like in high high school. Like you have to choose um like your subjects and stuff like going forward. Like what are you, what what, are, what is your vision? Like what do you want to do? No pressure yeah. for a fourteen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So at that point, i I was fifteen. Like, I had no idea. I all I knew was that I didn't want to continue sitting behind a uh, school bench all day and just grind out the uh, academic classes because that's I don't know. I just found it too boring. Like that wasn't that didn't work for me. Like that type of, of studying. So I wanted to. I knew I wanted to do something more practical, and uh, it's actually my mom came across this. Um, uh, culinary school. It was a culinary high school, so you would still you would still have all the academic classes, but you would also get trained to be uh to be a chef or work in like the hotel industry. Or you can choose like which way you want to go. But I realized quite quickly that this was something that I, I, I felt really passionate about the cooking. So I knew I wanted to be a chef like straight away, and. Um, my academic uh, my grades in the academic classes improved uh, tremendously as well i think just because i i suddenly had an outlet to do something practical it wasn't just eight hours behind the school bench all day and doing homework it was like uh, and i also had you know i could see a clear path um so i just enjoyed it at school by then a lot more and um yeah, it was sort of during those years that I, I discovered poker. So I started playing. Uh firstly I was playing with my friends. Like we bought a like poker ship, a uh, poker set and we'd play on weekends and whatnot. Uh and then when they got fed up with the game, they I realized that I was mostly winning. So I realized that I was, you know, I had more patience than that, than they did, you know, no limit. Like you run out of patience, like you're toast. So uh it was, they got fed up with the game like long before I did, um, and I think that's when I transitioned to online poker and started playing. Started playing free olds I found free old tournaments were like a good way to learn, not having to risk any money. Uh, and then slowly but surely, as I was started earning, uh, working extra as a as a chef on, on the weekends, I could deposit a little bit
1: of my money and, and try to. Run it up and, and try to play for real money. It's an interesting juxtaposition of, you know, a chef. You're feeding people, right? You're feeding people. You're serving people. You're giving them energy. It's a very, um, just inherently fulfilling job that you do for for other human beings. And poker is not the same, <laughs> where your job is to bust people and to crush people and to make good decisions and be the best that you can be in a competitive environment. So I think it's it's interesting to me, uh, this the comparison between the two paths of being a chef and poker player, and I guess, ultimately, what led you to pursue poker more in earnest than a job as a chef or a career as a chef yeah so i,
0: I found a, a pretty good balance i think because i was working i was working weird hours you know as you do as a chef because you're you're working when the restaurants are open and then you're staying on a bit later so you only finish about 1 a.m uh and you have to be at work at, at like in the afternoon sometime to to prep so I would come home at night uh, around one or two AM. And at that time I was so fired up from working that um, poker was like the perfect outlet for me to uh you know fire up a few tournaments and do something completely different that wasn't physical at all because I was quite exhausted from like physically, but not mentally. Like mentally I was fired up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had such a strong passion for the game even then. So like it was just really exciting. Like it was something. I really look forward to 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 get back home and 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 play online poker after i, I would finish working so it sort of became a habit that i did and uh, i it was in the summer of, or early summer of 2008 where i guess i had my first real success where i managed to win a wsfp main event package and uh i've told this story <laughs> this story many times but Back then, it was, uh, it was different because you could choose if you wanted to pocket the money, which was $12,000, uh, which represented about a year's salary uh, for me at the time. So it was uh, a shit ton of money. Or you could, of course, you know, invest the money and go and play, uh, go to Vegas. So I, I did the latter. <laughs>
1: um, and uh, How come? Why did you choose to, to go play? <laughs> Well, obviously, it was what I really wanted, but I was still,
0: it was still a big dilemma because I knew what the responsible thing was. And, you know, that would take the money and and start saving or or invest or, or, you know, but uh, I also knew what I really wanted to do. and, And I kind of felt like it was a sort of a three year old because this wasn't money that I. Expected in any way, and I've actually earned them by playing poker. So, like, maybe this is, you know, something that I should be doing, or like follow through on. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I couldn't decide, so I phoned my mom to ask for her opinion or her advice. And to my surprise, she said that of course you're gonna go go play. You know, like, what do you have to lose? You know, twelve wow. <laughs> <Plus, laughs> awesome thousand dollars. But uh, yeah, I mean, she. She knew how much I wanted to go play, and she, you know, she was cool with it. So that sort of made the decision very easy for me. I think, and I booked my flight shortly after. But I was only 20, 20 at the time, uh, and I didn't know anyone in poker, and none of my friends could afford to go, and I couldn't afford to bring anyone on either. <laughs> that was basically all the money I had. Flights to Vegas from Sweden are very expensive, so I ended up going by myself um because it was my 21st birthday three days before the main event
1: so i kind of saw that as a sort of a sign <laughs> that it was meant to be and it what'd be you do cool for your birthday that year i hope i hope you made friends at the wsop and you weren't just kind of by yourself the whole time
0: yeah i met i met friends on the flights actually so uh, yeah it didn't take long uh, it was a bit of a weird Epiphany, I guess. Once you walk through customs, and I had never traveled on my own, and I realized that it was like that silent. This was like w- way before like uh, iPods or anything like that. So like it was just you know just me myself and <laughs> walking like going to Vegas on my own. And I was thinking like what, what like what the what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then yeah, I met a Swedish couple on the flight over, and yeah, they were super friendly. And, uh, we went for dinner on my birthday, and then I met some other Canadian poker players at the pool at the uh, palms where where I was staying. And you know, we ended up partying. <laughs> you know, yeah, it was a, it was a great time. I met a lot of friends that I'm I'm still friends with today. So that was pretty cool.
1: Yeah, that's a benefit that wasn't really thought about. If you stay home and just pocket the money, you don't have those relationships that have lasted, you know, for now twelve or thirteen years, right? Like. I have to assume that there's way more than 12k in value in those relationships that that you gained and the experience that you had when you're you were in Vegas and you know that's a, a testament to the wisdom of your mom and saying like of course you're gonna play like did you play the tournament to get the cash or did you play the satellite to get the seat right like why were you playing the thing in the first place how did that first WSOP go for you <laughs> yeah that's the second part
0: now it, it went as bad as it could have <laughs> i uh arguably was the first person to get eliminated on the, <laughs> <third>. <laughs> on the third hand so about 10 minutes into the tournament i was eliminated and how did that feel empty <laughs> <Like> disappointing <laughs> Uh, and I was quite upset with myself because I felt like I, I I didn't play that well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you only played for three hands, so it's yeah. easy, pretty easy to judge whether you played well or not. Well,
0: I mean it was a bit of a cooler, but I you know today I, I would have been able to get away with it, but uh, or get away from it rather. Right? But uh, yeah, back then you know I've, I've always been quite a hard, kind of hard on myself, uh, but I was never, even though I went. As bad as it could have, like the tournament itself, I never regretted the decision of, uh, you know, following this opportunity and going going to play. I never like, oh my god, I just lost twelve thousand dollars. Like that, that that never that never occurred to me once. Like I never regretted uh, not taking the money, Um, and and I think that this whole experience like learned me a lot. Like going forward, as I said, I would never admit. These people uh, that I met, my my friends, that I'm still friends with today, and uh, I think a lot of things in my future that happened after that wouldn't have happened if I didn't go.
1: Absolutely, and I guess you had been playing poker for a little while at that time, and so I don't know what your expectation was, but you know, typically. Playing MTTs, you manage your expectations, and like the expectation is to do the best you can, and hopefully it works out. And most of the time it doesn't, and so I think that probably play played a little bit of a role there. In okay, I'm going to do my best, and if my best just isn't good enough on this day, then that's just the way poker goes sometimes.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but it's funny. I so some of the friends I met that they they were playing a different day one. I waited to play the last day one. Uh, and I went by the room to borrow a backpack so I could fit all my
2: food prep and all the drinks I prepared for like a long <laughs> <time to> do. <laughs> you spent more time preparing than you did playing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So after
1: this experience, you know, 2009, you went back home. What did you do? what What did your life look like? Were you still? I assume you're still an aspiring chef at that point because you said it represents like a year's salary. So, you flew back home, and then where did your poker journey take you from there?
0: Yeah, I was working at the time uh, at a at a restaurant in stockholm it was a It was a fun time in my life, like I really enjoyed it um but now when once I got back, it was like a whole new world opened up for me you now i I had this experience in the bag, and i I really got a a taste for traveling and, and like going abroad and like seeing what else is out there because before this like I I'd travel like you know vacations with my family but it's just it's not the same um, as traveling on your own because I realized like oh my god I met all these people and I had all these experiences like what else is there so I continued to work at the restaurant but I was like kept an open eye and I, I was immediately thinking like what if I could uh, get a job at a restaurant in Vegas, like one of the fine dining restaurants in Vegas. Like, would that be possible? And I started researching and like really looking into it. And I was thinking, if I do that, I could play live poker, you know, on the side, like even better. Or right? I can play online in Vegas. Like, who knows what? Because um, that's the good thing about being a chef, right? That you're so flexible. Like, there's restaurants all over the world, and it's all about really your your network and, and who you know and just reaching out and like asking for opportunities.
1: And, and there's yeah. a lot, right? There's a lot of restaurants in pretty much every city that exists. So you you can afford to be told no very many times. All it takes is one yes. Exactly.
0: So I, I went back, I continued working, and then shortly after about a month or so, um, we had a, a staff party actually for everyone that worked at the restaurant and uh, during this event i was speaking to one of the waitresses and she mentioned that her friend was working at a michelin star restaurant in barcelona and uh, they were looking for chefs so immediately i I jumped on the opportunity it's like okay well can can you get me in there like like tell her i'm interested so she did and she set it up for me and i was going to go there and i had a place to stay and everything so i quit my job and, and at the current restaurant in Stockholm, I was set to move to Barcelona and work because I had a Michelin-star restaurant, which I had been to before, like on vacation. I hadn't dined there, but I'd, I'd been inside the restaurant. So, like, I, again, I saw it as a sort it's of a dying. sign. Mm-hmm. So I was super excited about that. And then after I quit, so I stopped working. I couldn't get a hold of, of, <laughs> of my friend with the waitress. She just went MIA, like she wouldn't respond to my calls. She just I'm ghosted like, you. It was so weird, yeah. so just they I haven't heard from her, so I don't know
1: what Oh, cow, wow.
0: Yeah, but uh, I was still living at home. I didn't have many expenses, so and I knew I could always get another chef job if I really wanted to. But instead, I took this sort of uh, in-between job opportunity or slot and uh, started playing more poker which is like where my real passion was right now, at least. So, And that's just kind of how, how it went. And then I, I continued playing and then I played more tournaments and I had some success, like early success. I got second in the Sunday Million by August, so like two months later or so from Vegas. And that gave me like a, a little bit of a role and a little bit of confidence. And then I started playing more satellites. I qualified for EPT London. And then I qualified for EPT Budapest in October, the same year. So everything went went really fast, you know, from May when I won the WSFT main event package to October where I qualified for EPT Budapest. And then in EPT Budapest, I managed to get third place uh, for
1: about two hundred fifty thousand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at this point, it's like, hmm. Maybe I ought to pursue the poker thing instead of the chef thing. And it's really hilarious how how much of our lives and your life specifically hinge uh, hinges on such a random thing as somebody trying to hook you up with a job and then disappearing, which creates a void. And then all of a sudden you pursue poker and then your entire life changes, right? Like that person basically ghosting you was the catalyst to your entire poker career
0: yeah uh, it's super weird like when i think back about it like you know who knows what who would have planned out differently if things would have
1: you know (laughs) who knows um I, i think it's interesting that we live such a long time on this earth and that some of the most important things that happen to us are just somewhat arbitrary and kind of just happen in the matter of five minutes. And then like everything kind of changes based on this one silly thing that we just experienced. Um, So you're killing it. You're winning a lot. You know, your bankroll is likely very healthy at this point when you're experiencing that much success over a short period of time in MTTs. When did you make the decision that like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue poker. I'm going to travel. I'm going, this is what I want my life to be.
0: I actually never consciously made that decision. It was just sort of what happened next. Like I never applied for another chef job after I was just continuing playing poker. And then, but I, I continue, I think that was something that helped me as well uh, to sort of relieve the pressure. Uh, that I never decided that I was going to, okay, now I'm a professional poker player. Instead, I, w- I kept the mindset of like, I'm going to continue playing poker for a while, see what happens. And then, you know, if I, if I'm not doing well, or if I don't feel like it anymore, I can always get another job. Um, so I think having that sort of fallback plan and like sort of insurance, like I didn't quit uh, like six year halfway into you know, law school or something like that. Like I didn't make a huge sacrifice. So having the, the the insurance, I think was very beneficial for me to to not feel that pressure that I have to perform. Otherwise, you know, I'm done or I've got to start from scratch.
1: It's a smart poker player thing to do, to be honest with you. Like I was watching Chewy on Poker Out Loud a week or so ago. And what struck me as hilarious where just when Chewy's like, I'm going to check and see what happens, right? And I think that checking and seeing what happens is such an important part of being a poker player, being able to analyze new data points as they come up instead of just having a hard line plan for I'm going to just bet the turn and then I'm betting the river or I'm going to bet the turn and always check to induce, right? Like there are so many data points that can come our way that influence future decisions that to just eliminate them not use them in our thought process and our planning is ultimately just it's not good it it hampers our ability to make good decisions hampers our ability to see doors that we may not have otherwise seen a classic example is like you know one of my students like checks back and he's like i'm gonna bluff catch rivers but then like something happens to where it creates an opportunity where raising the river um looks like it might perform just bluff catching but because they've already verbalized they've already put themselves in position to play the river a certain way they don't see the other options that are available to them when they get new data points and so yeah i think that's probably the best way to go about it right like let's play poker and see what happens, like see if it keeps going well, see if, you know, maybe you don't enjoy it in a year or two. And because you don't have this hard line agreement that like, this is what I'm doing with my life, you can transition and go back to something that is more fulfilling to you or resonates with you more as you grow and get older. Um, so anyway, that's my long winded way of saying like, that seems to be the most intelligent way to go about it. Because we don't know who we're going to be in five years, we don't know who we're going to be in 10 years. And to just say, I'm doing this forever. I think is a mistake, like maybe, but maybe it doesn't resonate with you in 10 years based on the data and to pursue it after it stops giving you fulfillment just seems like a, an incredible, it seems like a tragedy to me, quite frankly.
0: I agree. And it's interesting that you mentioned this, because I was having this conversation actually yesterday um, that I've realized with myself, I'm, I struggle to commit to things because I know that once I'm committed, I'm a hundred percent it. Like I'm very I'm very persistent and I have a hard time to to let go and accept failure. So I think that's subconsciously why I didn't wanna picture myself or, or portray myself as a, now I'm a poker player full time because I really didn't know really what I was doing. It was just something that caught my attention and I found really interesting, and I realized I had a little bit of a maybe a natural gift, and, and it was something that I was very drawn to. So I wanted to explore that further, but I also didn't want to commit in case I was wrong.
1: Yeah, I mean, or in case you change, right? Like our opinions change. I don't know who I was ten years ago. Like that's a different human being. It looks like me, it sounds like me, but I don't recognize them. My the belief system has changed. My vision, my goals have changed. What I enjoy doing is change, like we talked about earlier, right? Like I go to sleep now at 10 or 11 p.m. and I'm awake at 7.30. Like I would not have predicted that that would be my life 10 years ago. So yeah, as as new data gets introduced, like just kind of go with the flow, check and check and see what happens. Something happens to you though that doesn't happen to a ton of poker players um, over the course of their lifetimes. So 2014 rolls around, I assume you know in the gap there you had just you'd been grinding away, traveling, playing poker. So tell me about 2014 because that's that's a pretty big year in the life of one Martin Jacobson.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, so 2014 actually started to be contemplating about leaving poker and doing something else. I wanted to. So to re- rewind a little bit between. 2008 and 2014 i uh, the success like continued straight away and i was very consistently
1: winning and making big final tables at the at the european tour um what are you looking back what do you attribute that to your just success kind of straight away in the world of poker i don't know i think i
0: was just you know i was honestly running incredibly well um and, yeah, I you got, you know, a natural talent for the game. And just, yeah, I wasn't studying that much, to be honest. I was fortunate to, you know, meet a lot of friends that I would discuss strategy with. and That's studying, always, Martin. That's studying. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> I mean, back then, it wasn't, it wasn't much structured studying anyway. It was like card runners.
1: <laughs> that was about it, you know, yeah. videos you could watch. I've learned, though, like, I don't enjoy studying just, like, Oh man, there's nothing that will ruin my day more than sitting in front of Pio for like four hours, studying one output on one hand and figuring out all the new nuances like that is, uh, oh, it, it does not appeal to me in one bit, but like get somebody that I can talk about poker strategy with and kind of look at databases and create hypotheses and plans and like bounce ideas back and forth. Like I could do that all day for free. That's fun. Um, It took me a long time to realize like, oh, that's just, that's a studying that resonates with me. That's my idea of, you know, that, that's what will, that's what gives me the path to grow as a poker player more than anything else. Cause it's fun. I enjoy doing it. And, And I think that like, if studying, if you're listening right now and studying doesn't appeal to you, maybe go about studying and think about, reflect, meditate on your relationship with the word and find a better way to go about it. That lights you up that makes you excited to learn and grow as a poker player
0: definitely definitely agree and i think going back to the how the school system is set up it's the same in terms of well for one like not everyone is the same but also like to keep it somewhat flexible to to sort of tailor to the students need rather than just trying kind to of fit everyone in the same mold. I know it's it's, it's hard to do and hard to to, to implement that sort of uh, school structure, but I think it would be super beneficial for, for society overall and like future as uh, our future generation because I think that, that the students will get so much more out of it and be
1: so much more happier and, and... Oh, I hated it. Oh, like I can't, I can't express to you how much I hated school. Like you see me here, like I'm I like rock back in my chair. Like I have so much anxious energy that like sitting down in a desk was like when I graduated high school, like I was like, okay, I'm gonna take a year off from college because I just couldn't imagine myself being in that setting again because it just I hated it. I hated going to school every single day. It was not fun. And I read a statistic that is terrifying in one sense. Of the word that like kids nowadays, like the jobs that elementary school students will have when they enter the workforce, um, 85% of those jobs don't even exist today. And if you think about the pressure that is put on kids to figure out what they want to do in the meantime, for a world that is going to look totally different when they actually come of age and enter the workforce, you can just kind of see how that's a recipe for... A lot of disaster a lot of stress a lot of anxiety
0: for sure and i that's obviously what what i felt when i got asked that question when i was 15 so we're like what do you want to do like what do you want to what do you want to be like ultimately when you you graduate it's like i don't know
1: <laughs> like, i had no idea i don't know, I don't, know.
0: I don't want to sit down a school bench all day and like study this way that we've been doing so far so is there any, <laughs> any other options like, yeah. what's the alternative
1: yeah i can rule this one out let's see what else is uh, out there in the world
0: yeah but i think a better way to structure it then would be to okay well uh you're going to re you're going to start this you know very broad program where you'll you'll try all these different subjects and then after a year we're going to reevaluate them. you're going to you know we're going to reevaluate where you do well and what you like and we don't like and then we're going to like try to literally form your path and yeah grouping with like-minded people that are also on the same path and i think that would be so much more efficient for for everyone
1: yeah check and see what happens we're like this is the common thread of this conversation up to this like just check in and see what happens. Like, do I enjoy this? If I make this plan, maybe next year I don't. And then see what happens and then take it as it comes instead of trying to, you know, just trying to predict the future. Because, you know, spoiler alert, like, you can't. You don't predict the future. We can't predict what's going to happen from year to year, from week to week, month to month, or even day to day. So just take it as it comes. And uh, there's just a lot of pressure, I think, on kids. I felt the same. And I always felt just a sense of, anxiousness of i don't know i'm supposed to know right i think that's the implication is like i'm supposed to know how i want to spend the rest of my life but i legitimately have no idea and that's a very scary place to be and yeah just for the future generation i think it's it's not necessary and not practical and it's not how any of us live our lives as adults yeah no. yeah more flexibility everywhere <laughs> would do a lot of good absolutely and now um Let's circle back in. So, 2010, 2014. Tell me about your life. You said you had considered moving on from poker. Tell me about that and how that came to be, or how that came about. That thought.
0: Yeah. So at this point,
1: I I
0: played poker for about like professionally for about six years, and yeah, I had had good success doing it, but I was still looking for or something else like I I was I wouldn't say I was fed up with it but like I wanted to explore other options and, and I wasn't sure that this was you know the path that I wanted to continue on I didn't feel like I was progressing as much as I wanted in my game I didn't feel like there was that many options either like this was in 2014 so this was like early 2014 late 2013 so it was like before all the solvers and everything like all the tools came available for how, how to improve in the game, so I felt like I was just like repetitively like going from stop to stop, playing tournaments, and you know having some success, like some setbacks and downswings, and and hanging around with the same people. Like I, I enjoy that life, but I also knew I wanted to do something else. So what I was really passionate about then was to start my own company and entrepreneurship. Um and um uh, I wanted to combine that with my other interests, which is uh health and nutrition. So I wanted to open up a, a sort of healthy fast food chain, um sort of like a, a juice bar back then, which was like it's very oversaturated now. And I'm glad <laughs> I that passion. But uh back then it was you know very, very trendy and um Big, big part of my life. Uh, so I sort of babble with with that idea, uh, and I also, I think, I was on a, a little bit of a downswing in poker. So I mean, I'm sure that contributed to exploring other options. It always uh, does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was, probably wasn't that long because I, I think maybe like a six month downswing or something like that. Like
1: nothing uh but back then it felt like
0: uh, a lifetime and i was like yeah
1: when you're in it it feels like it's just never going to end like you know you get outside of it and you're like why could how could i ever why how could i ever be the mindset that's never going to end And it's like this sort of cycle that just replays itself over and over and over for poker players throughout their career
0: but that's the thing with poker, right? That There's no certainties. Like you no idea when you next when you play tournaments, at least like zero idea when your next paycheck is going to be.
1: Yeah, it doesn't come in cash either. There's there's never any certainty. You just do the best you can and hope that it works out, and you don't end up in a cardboard box on the side of the roads at some point. Yeah, yeah. I'll fall back
0: behind the game, and like you're always during the evolution of the game, you're always questioning like it's still beatable. you know <laughs> you look at your friends and you're like who the, who the hell is winning here and like you ask your friends
1: like oh yeah i'm also in an
0: eight-month
1: downswing like haven't won or okay. even worse you're on a downswing and everybody else is on an upswing and you at least that is that inspires me
0: because then i know okay well this person i, I know i'm like we're on a similar level here yeah like, you know a few places like different like could turn things around really quickly um uh, but when everyone I speak to also says that they're on a really long downswing and, and they don't know anyone else either that,
1: that's winning, that that's yeah, you know, it's not a good sign. Yeah, not a good sign. No. Um, so sorry to come back to your question.
0: Yeah, I was uh, I didn't leave poker. Um, so I went to Austin Millions um, by the start of the year and. That's sort of like where I gave up on the idea of entrepreneurship, but at least put it on pause, because uh, I did pretty well there. I I had a well, I final table the uh, twenty five k and and the hundred k,
1: and I went deep in the main. So it was like a, an amazing trip, and like I was like yeah, I'm back. <laughs> uh, this makes sense again. I like life. This is <laughs> this is a good life. Um, yeah pretty Much, yeah, and it was my first time in all really,
0: Millions as well. I was
1: like, oh no,
0: I can't give this up, like, no way. Uh, so I continued playing I went to Vegas that year, as usual. You know, spent the summer there, played uh, the full schedule. Um, I think I had a decent summer, I, I got seventh, I believe, a final table bubble into the 10k six max. Uh, but other than that, I didn't really do much but it wasn't like a, a terrible or great summer uh, leading up to the main event and then the main event rolls around and I I had a terrible <laughs> main event record leading up to this point you know obviously starting with 2008 but <laughs> the, the following years you know I could only improve at least <laughs> but uh, I never I never made it past day two dinner break and the main event which is you know so most of them have been day one bust-outs, which is you know quite remarkable given how the structures, and, uh, yeah, the the field, yeah. and the field, yeah. So uh, I've, uh, I think most what I've screwed up in the main event the most is that by the time the main event comes, I'm so drained and exhausted from from playing the full summer. And I just don't respect the tournament enough. I, like, overplay my hand, or I get so frustrated playing with weak players, and I feel like I'm, you know, entitled to pots, and, like, I try to force things. And, like, I I'm generally I'm not happy with how I played the w c p main event. Uh, but, yeah, in 2014, uh, uh, it was did, sort of different, you know? Everything just clicked for some reason. I, I'm not sure why. Uh, I had... Uh, really good table to draw day one and um, um i think i was probably the only professional player and ran really well and ended up bagging the overall ship lead um across all flights so that was a good start and then it just continued that way i, I kept increasing my chip stack every level i didn't have a losing level until day five um which was like level 32 or something crazy. It was insane. That's I've never, good. never experienced anything like
1: it. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how it's got to go, right? Like, it's, you know, the main, any field with that many people, like, it's just somebody has to win it and it's hard to imagine that it's you, but somebody ultimately has to right? like somebody has to win it every single year. And when, you know, you get good table draws, things don't fall apart. You keep building your chip stack and things just keep going. You get in a groove. That's kind of how it has to be on the road to taking down a tournament like that, because obviously you hit some significant bumps and most likely you've already busted and it's all over for you. Um, Was there any preparation change because that's the thing, so me being in the cash game streets forever, the the times that I've played tournaments and made like whatever, a day two, I find myself at one or two AM, used to going to bed earlier than that, but having this adrenaline that like wires me and keeps me awake to like four or five. And I'm like, man, how do these guys do this day in and day out? Like keeping a schedule with so much adrenaline and then like trying to come down um, to get back to even so that you can settle down, go to sleep, get a restful night's sleep, so that you're prepared cognitively to compete once again um, the following day? Was Is there anything that like through your travels, like, any, what process do you use to kind of wind down so that you can reset and then attack the next day with energy?
0: I think it's something that you just get used to as a tournament player. I've only played tournaments since the beginning of my career, basically. So, I think when when you play so many tournaments as I have, it's like, yeah, it's just something that your your body adapts to, and and you've been in the same situation so many times now that just it just remembers. It's just like muscle memory or or whatever. It, it's like mental memory. Like you, you, you yeah. It's it, it's it also makes sense. Not, as, as you're as, saying that's exciting. You know, the first time yeah. you made it, make a day two, you're like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, I you know, won't be able to sleep. And you're so excited. And the first time you make a final table, it's the same thing. But once you've been in that spot a lot of times before, it's like it's not as exciting. I also feel like sometimes when I'm in a spot where it is super exciting now, it almost relaxes me more. I don't know. I think it's a lot of it has to do with how you tackle your emotions. I think Uh, key for me is to embrace the nerves and sort of like really, really um, take them in and like try to use them as something positive, try to use them as energy rather to
1: reject them. Absolutely. Yep. That's uh, um, one of my friends. (laughs) Yeah. it, It makes a lot of sense. Like as I'm relating it to like cash games where it's like, win whatever 10 15k and it's just over you just go to sleep like (laughs) you don't really carry it with you you just cash out take your chips back to your room and you pass out and there's no really unwinding because that's just the thing that happens on a day-to-day basis and that's the world that you live in so yeah that makes a lot of sense to me um once you're like just immersed in it and you're used to it you just have to get used to it just experience i've said it many times on the show but like how how does an mma fighter get used to getting punched in the face well he gets punched in the face a lot, and that's how you your body hardens and you get used to experiencing it. Um, I love what you said though uh, about using the anxiety as energy. You know that's a greatness bomb. A uh, friend of mine, Adam Creek, he's Olympic gold medalist. He he said that before any like World Championship rowing event, you know he would his routine involved being thankful for the energy thank you for thank you for this anxiety this is energy that i get to use to make me go faster to help our team to perform at a very high level and that's something that has has stuck with me and i found that like in before any competition before any like conversation like this or whatever if i'm ever feeling any sort of like nervous energy i try to frame it as I'm grateful for this energy because this energy is what's going to allow me to perform at a high level. So like, thank you for this anxiousness. Thank you for this energy.
0: Yeah. I think that's, that's key to, to not get consumed by, by your emotions.
1: Yeah. And we're emotional creatures and that's just when you, whenever we try to like turn them off or avoid them, only bad things happen when like, because you can't, you can't flip them off. They're going, you're going to feel emotions, whether you want to or not. So you may as well learn how to navigate and deal with them appropriately in a way that is positive and sort of makes sense. And, um, as you're like chip leading, doing all the things, not having a losing level till day five, uh, getting closer to the finish line to where it's like, holy shit, like there's an end to this thing. And I'm like, I'm in the race still, you know? Could you tell me about those thoughts uh, as you're, you know, going through day five, day six in the WSOP main in 2014?
0: Um, I'm not sure there was that many thoughts, actually, but I was just... If I've ever been in, in the zone in a tournament, like, this was it. Like, I was just, you know, like a machine. Like, I was just grinding and, like, not letting myself like get emotional or I fired up about the the spot or whatever I was just trying to play my best and and not you know um and I think also because I've had I have so much experience in tournaments and like I've been in that situation before obviously nothing to the extent of the the WSFP main event but uh I was just trying to look at it as like any other tournament really and just, you know, playing my best and I noticed that a lot of my opponents, they were really nervous. and That sort of calms me because I know if they're more nervous than I am, then, you know, I have an advantage and I better use that advantage to my advantage.
1: <laughs> For sure. And if you learn anything from your first WSOP, it's that you're always only three hands away from, you're always only three hands away from <laughs> crashing right. and burning. So yeah I mean that 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 I think is an underrated skill set as it relates to MTTs because the more comfortable you are, um, the more prone to or the less comfortable you are, the more prone to self sabotage, the more prone to just kind of doing something that doesn't really make sense in a moment of you know when you're can't deal with your the emotions of the moment and you kind of just punt off your stack and being calm. And being the person who's on the receiving end of these punts, because this is not something I hear talked about a ton, is like somebody receives all the punts that happen in an event. And so, if you're the person that's just like opening your hands and be like, "Thank you for these chips," that's just something that almost feels like it's an invaluable thing as it relates to MTTs.
0: Yeah, uh, it's a great feeling when you're you're on the other side of a punt that <laughs> you know that you shouldn't you shouldn't. You know, have gotten, and you just get a, a complete gift. And it, on the flip side, it's the worst feeling when you're the one doing the punt because you know how that person feels, and you know that yeah, that you shouldn't have punted that that way. But I mean, we're all humans; and we all make mistakes. Uh, I think as long as you learn from your mistakes, like it's it's fine. Like it shouldn't be so hard on yourself. But it's very, definitely easier said than done. And I'm my worst. I'm my own worst critic, uh, for sure, like in poker and in life. But uh, uh, so it's something yeah, you know, I'm working on, try not to be so hard on myself. But it's also it's a fine balance, I think, because I also want to make sure that I'm driven enough and I'm progressing and I, I'm doing my best. So it's
1: somewhere got to be a middle ground somewhere. Yeah, it's easy to be way too hard on yourself. And it's easy to not be hard on yourself at all and kind of deflect all blame and of what's happening. And you you do have to stay on top of it. You need that fire to improve and try to do better without totally destroying yourself in the process. So john, you've used neutralized flop leads in the past 24 hours, correct?
2: Yeah, so I got the basically the slide with all the info on it on friday evening and yesterday i played a session of uh one knl on ignition and played one particular pot that i remember where a fish just donks flop turn river into me and i ended up winning with a hand that i would have folded before looking at the slide but i ended up winning like a 400 pot instead and the course is 99 dollars so definitely paid for itself very very quickly and I think that'll be the case for even people that aren't playing as big as 510 no limit like I think this is a course that will very very quickly pay for itself given how how much more donking there is at lower stakes and I think one of the most common questions I see asked in the greatness village slack group is what do donks mean how do I deal with donk bets I I think that's got to be like in the top three most frequently asked questions you you ought
1: to feel very excited when somebody donks into you because some good things are about to happen.
2: You said like you probably don't need anyone to teach the course or like you can just look at the slide and, and learn all then for yourself. I feel like y- you, Brad, will have to be there because I am I am almost sure sure that anybody who looks at the slide won't believe it looking at what they're supposed to do and will have to confirm with you that like you didn't make a massive typo somewhere and that this is actually what they're supposed to do because it's pretty shocking the optimal way to deal with fish donking into you on the floppers
1: if you'd like to check out neutralize flop leads so that you're never again confused when a fish leads into you in a single raised pot head to chasingpokergreatness.com nuffle that's chasingpokergreatness.com n-u-f-f-l-e and now back to the show So, we'll just we'll skip to you just you taking it down, right? You win the twenty fourteen WSOP main event. I'm sure lots of emotions there, and kind of you know a once in a multiple multiple lifetime experience of winning ten million dollars, being crowned the world champion of poker, and getting all the acclaim, doing the interviews afterwards. Um, after you had conquered. The mountain in MTTs. Like, what did you go through after that? Like, after you had done the one thing that everybody strives to do, did, was there any thought of um, losing motivation? Is it related to playing poker? Yeah, just w- what was your experience like?
0: I always we, we talked about like you can't offset your emotions at any point, but I think to some extent at the final table, like that's sort of what I did. I was so focused on not getting emotional that I just almost switched off my emotional button if, if that makes sense. And it's something I've tried to do the, like after that, but it's just it's not possible. It's possible that the moment was so it was so big. It was so enormous that I I couldn't grasp how big it was. Um, because once I won, it was it was sort of like an overwhelming feeling. And you really didn't know what to expect, how to act, what to feel. Um, I think a lot, of, a lot of my enjoyment from it was to see the excitement and the happiness on all my friends. And like that I had people to celebrate with. Because I think if I would have been alone in that moment, like it wouldn't have been, you know, that memorable at all. Um, so I think that's a key part.
1: It, that bag and also a lot of my friends they so help you, you you just said ready. that if 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 you won the wsop main and you were by yourself it wouldn't have been that memorable i don't i don't know if i i don't know <laughs> if i'm gonna buy that but <laughs> all right
0: <laughs> uh it's it's really hard to
1: explain i don't really know how else to put it uh, i know what but, you're saying though i know i know what you're saying it, it does make sense that like the shared joy of that journey and that victory is all—all all the better when you have your friends, the people that you love, the people that root for you. Um, it's you know, it, it's all the things. Like, like I, I can, I can totally see how that is like the biggest, really most important part of the puzzle.
0: I think a lot of the drive and the the enjoyment is the the process. So, like getting there, like that's what I really enjoy it.
1: <laughs>
0: and then once it was done it was kind of like oh shit it's over <laughs> yes, i know yes. it's, it sounds weird and it, it's really hard to describe but uh and yeah following that it was like so like what's what's next and at that point i've been playing poker for quite some time i've obviously reached the pinnacle of, of the game so it was sort of a decision i had to make between Staying in poker, I felt some sort of responsibility of staying in poker and representing the game, and like as a as a world champion, you sort of I feel like the poker community sort of expects it of you that you should be a, you know a good role model and a good front figure for the game, and, and so I think a lot of that kept me in the game, even though maybe my heart and my will wasn't. in it anymore. But I also didn't know what else I would do if I were to play poker. And I didn't really allow myself to take a break. I just kind of kept going with it. And kept playing kept traveling kept living my life just as before like nothing's ever happened. You know, now I was a world champion. But you know, it's just a title and you know, bigger bankroll, but nothing else really changed. Uh, I was playing the same tournaments. I was hanging around with the, the same friends, you know, living the same life, really. So I think if I could go back, I would have taken a, a bit of a break right after, like, forced myself to take a few months off to really process what, what happened and really question and see, try to realize what it is I want to do
1: check what? and see what happens right exactly yeah. <laughs> check and see what happens um and, and it doesn't sound weird to me that you sort of have these thoughts because again like relating it back to like world champions and gold medal winners right this isn't a thing that like they oftentimes go through depression after they win a gold medal because they've trained for four years with one goal in mind one thing and then once it's done it's done and the thought is what the hell do I do with my life now? Like, what is what is next? And, you know, that can be a very scary place. And, I, you know, so I just wanted to say that I totally, what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me as it relates to high achievement, because it's in multiple fields, that same feeling exists for people where it's a little bit of like, I don't want to say depression, but it is a little bit of a depression where you don't know what's next. You don't know what to strive for. You, you've you done The thing that like everybody dreams of doing so how do you how do you stay motivated how do you stay happy how do you keep striving as a professional and really the way that you went about it seems sort of naturally one of the healthiest ways to go about it is like you just keep doing what you were doing before the thing that made you happy hanging out with the same friends going to the same places um and just trying to do your best from tournament to tournament but um you know, you mentioned at the very beginning of this that eventually you'll be getting out of poker. And so from that time when you were playing till today, these past seven years, tell me about like how your poker journey, how you've evolved as an ambassador and a grinder and a world champion.
0: It's been a, it's been a long journey. Um, And I think when you've dedicated so much time into something it's sort of you know this is my career now like now it's safe to say that I sort of associate myself as a portray myself as a poker player and that's sort of become my identity so it's hard to break free from an identity that's been so ingrained and you know I'm the world champion and like in the general public side I'm probably one of the best players in the world you know us, like we know that's not true. But uh it's like it puts a lot of pressure on you to sort of continue that path and like this is who I am. And it's scary to leave that identity and just start something else that you maybe have no experience in. Um, but for me it's always been about always questioning like what is it that that I want to do? And like is this where passion lies right now is this what drives me is this what what gives me purpose to get up in the morning and, and just staying open-minded and exploring other opportunities and, and options and the same way like my corporate career started back in the day um had i not you know taking a shot in the satellites and wanted the, the, the wsip package and then chose them to go to vegas to to play then, Not be deflated after busting the third hand and continue sticking with it and and keep taking opportunities as as they come along. Like I wouldn't be where I am today. So like, what's to say that I can't do that? Take the same path in a different area, a different industry. Uh, So it's just about figuring out where that is. Uh, And I have a few options right now that I'm I'm sort of bouncing with, and I'm, I'm trying to get something solid going um so i'm I'm quite excited uh, about the future, but I still like don't get me wrong, I'm still very passionate about poker i I love grinding and i I back I don't love grinding as much anymore um like yeah, not at least like five days in a row, you know, like I used to, but I still love playing the game, I still love playing tournaments and uh, yeah do you still? still-
1: do you still feel the fear of kind of leaving poker behind and not, not just like totally leaving poker behind, but being more of a recreational player that plays when you have time, but not the major driver in your entire existence. Is there a fear of kind of leaving that identity behind and turning the page and starting a new journey?
0: For sure. Yeah.
1: Uh, But I think
0: what inspires me is to see a lot of my friends, taking that step now and they've left poker and they're doing other things they're you know trading cryptocurrencies or they've started their own business or they've uh, trading you know other things um, a lot of traders in your friends a lot of traders so <laughs> you, you know that the obvious that it's the obvious path you know for poker players who are very analytical and are very good at seeing pattern recognition and all this stuff so For me, I'm not sure that that's my path. I'm more of like the creative type. Like, I love, I would be more of a, I'm probably a bigger favorite to to start a company and and, then try to grow that. Like, I I love creating things and and building businesses. I love business structure and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, what inspired me about seeing my friends take this step is that when I asked them, you know, like, do you ever miss poker? Like, Do you ever feel like, oh, I shouldn't have done this or like, oh, I wish I could play? And most of them say no. They're like, no, like uh, I have no urge to play whatsoever. And that's kind of interesting to me. So that makes me think that maybe if I, you know, actually took the step and did something else, would my desire to play poker disappear? But that's also scary because
1: like, yeah, I don't want to give it up. So, Uh, it's it's tricky. I can only speak from my experience of just day in, day out, professional poker player, and then switching to something else and trying to build a business. Um, very time consuming, very difficult. And, you know, I do a lot of private coaching and a lot of research and there, there are certainly days where I'm like, man, I would kill to just wake up, hit the gym, meditate, stretch, do breathing exercises, and then just jump in and just fucking go to war for, you know, three hours, take a break, walk, take a walk by myself, and then go back to war again. There are certainly days where that pull is very strong in my life. And I'm like, man, I got to I have like six meetings today. Like I've got to do all these, like I have actual responsibilities now that I've got to show up for and do. Um, but ultimately, I think that I wouldn't go back to being a full-time grinder because I think at least in my case, the fulfillment and joy of teaching people and making an impact in their poker career and seeing them like, you know, one of my, one of my students had never played online poker before. He is a professional live poker player. He started playing at hundred no limit back in like August. And now he's playing one K no limit and like ripped off 50 K in January. And it's like knowing that like, I played a role. I mean, he did the work, he performed, he moved up. He gets all the glory there, but knowing that, that I played a role in the development of someone and help guide them on that path is like so much more joyous and fulfilling than moving up myself. Right. I, if that makes some sense. And so like, I think there's just, there's a lot of joy in serving other people and giving back. And even though I made way less money, um, on this venture that I would have had, I just played poker. I think ultimately, ultimately, I wouldn't change a thing. At least in my personal experience,
0: I can definitely relate to that. Um, I've done some coaching lately as well. I did a, a group course with with Farid Jetton, We did it now, um, beginning of this year, actually via Zoom. So we had twenty students uh, in our class, and then we designed a. Step by step, like tournament course, like a master course, and just having that interaction with with hungry players that are willing to learn and they they want to achieve what you achieved, and, and I feel like I possess you know knowledge and, and experience, and I'm very excited to share that with them. That's very fulfilling, you know. At the end of the day, every time I would end the class, I would feel like a million bucks, like I've just like emptied my knowledge tank and my exchange my experience and like that sharing experience is so much more fulfilling than after I finish a 10-hour grind you know like it's not even comparable uh, so yeah yeah. I think it's not just about where you can make the most money and like what do you what do you think you should do or like what do you think you enjoy it's what do you actually enjoy like what's the feeling after you finish a session whatever it is like because that tells you a lot about if you're doing the right thing or not, so, something venturing into coaching and realizing the fulfillment I get from that and the energy, it's made me realize that you know I, I need to create something or I need to help other people. Like that's what really benefits me at the end of the day. Maybe not this zero sum game that I, you know, I love. I love the competitive aspect, the strategy behind it and, and, and all of that and the lifestyle, but
1: it's not, it's, it's never going to be as fulfilling. Like even if you win a tournament. Well, it's not today for Martin Jacobson in present moment, right? Which ultimately is what matters. And I, I think what you're saying there, you know, I've thought a lot about the why of, you know, why, why do I feel so good? And ultimately the conclusion I've come to is that I'm helping people who I see myself in who are on the path that I was on. And when you see somebody who's on the path that you were on and you can guide them and give them the wisdom that you didn't have, that you wish you could, that somebody could have given you in the moment. Like that's just, Oh, there's no better feeling than it's you're just helping a a younger version of yourself, reach their goals and find their way through poker. And like, man, it's something that like I live for. Like, I just, I love it so, so, so much. Um, very rewarding, very fulfilling and um yeah i 've learned about myself it 's a thing that i 'm going to do well i 'm not going to say i 'm going to do it forever because again, I think that maybe one day it 's not as fulfilling as it is today, but it 's in my plans to do it for a very long time into the future, as well as playing poker too I enjoy you know I enjoy playing poker, making good decisions, and playing big pots. I think that 's something that i I still find is a a fun activity, testing myself against my competitors and seeing where I, where I fit in into the hierarchy of cash game poker, but serving other people, giving back is ultimately my number one joy just as a human being in my time on this earth. Yeah, definitely. I do that thing where I like, I go on like a long monologue and I just end it. And you're like, yeah, that there's no, there's no segue <laughs> there. It's just, this. Uh, <laughs> there's no place to bridge or move to a different thing. Um, I do want to, you know wrap up your journey before we head into the lightning round and ask some of the the questions that i prepared but what's next on the slate for you you know you mentioned you made a course you've mentioned that there is a life outside of poker what do you today envision that life to look like
0: well that's that's what i'm trying to figure out <laughs> so yeah i'm trying to explore different options right now at the moment i'm in the process of setting up my own youtube channel and sort of a different way to structure it and I realized the benefits YouTube has of of reaching a bigger audience and being able to share your knowledge with with more people Uh, so that's something that I'm quite excited about it's also a challenge for me I'm not someone who who's I wouldn't consider myself a natural in front of the camera or speaking public speaking or anything like that so it's been a process and It's something I've got to practice with this group course, for example, and I can see the improvements I make from time to time. So that's very uh, exciting and rewarding. And I want to continue that journey and get better at it because I realize it's a very important (laughs) skill to
1: have in life,
0: uh, you know, in
1: a lot of areas. It's humbling. We all think that we're great at public speaking until we have like a two-minute script and it takes us 100 takes to get the thing right. And we're like, oh my god, like this is so much harder than I ever imagined it would actually be. Yeah. Ask the, the production team at
0: 888 8, <laughs> about my camera skills. there has been a, been a lot of retakes over the years. Uh, Over simple stuff like one-liners, like just read this. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> what what was the second word again?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's a skill set. It's something that you got to practice and get comfortable, and then over time you just get better at it. But like there is no there is no just being good at something without having to deal with all the bullshit and the downside and the struggles. Like there that that's always a part of the journey in pretty much any endeavor, the struggles. And eventually you get comfortable and you just are able to do a much better job. What's your YouTube channel going to be about? What, what is this Martin Jacobson YouTube channel? Is it poker? What's the your vision for it?
0: Uh, my vision for it is to continue this journey and, and, and release material that I think other people would like to know of my experience of what I've learned. Through poker in life so far, uh, so it will be a mix of uh, poker tips, of course. Uh, nothing too like dense, like not not a lot of solver works or, or, or deep hand uh, analysis or, or stuff like that. Uh, maybe some like tournament reviews uh, with commentary. That would be fun.
1: I'm smiling like, right now because this is this is funny because I see like. I can, I can already kind of see where it's going to go. And, oh, yeah. What's that? Well, I started this show, right, as like a di- deep dive into the journey of my fellow professional poker players and just people in the industry because I love story. Like, I'm drawn to story. I love hearing about where people come from. Um, you know, I know that it's not like a linear path to having success in poker. There's lots of ups, lots of downs. And so that part of it, like... Yeah, I love that. And and I I said in the beginning, like, I'm not going to do super strategic episodes. I'm not going to, like, go deep into that. And then I realized that that's, like, what my people want to hear. And ultimately, like, we're serving our audience. And because you're serving your audience, and if that's what they want, then that's just what you have to create, right? (laughs) Ultimately, um, they dictate it. And so I can certainly see that, like, not wanting to be dense is going to turn into, like... Asks for more advanced and more dense material, which eventually just turns into more dense material. And you're like, How did I end up doing this? Like, <laughs> how did I how, did I, how did I get myself here? Um, yeah. But, but anyway. I
0: think, yeah, but let me to, to answer your question in kind of broad terms is that I'm going to check and see what happens. I'm going <laughs> to be flexible mm-hmm. uh, with the content. I have a lot of ideas, but then whether I, I go this route or that route, like that, we'll kind of see. 'Cause exactly like you said, there's something I've learned about YouTube is that you have to cater to your audience because otherwise what what's the point if no one's gonna view <laughs> view your content. So uh uh we'll we'll see, you know. Um hopefully it'll be a mix of everything. I, that's what I would like to do. Uh, you know, some performance tips, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> winning WSP main like what was that like? You know, like a lot of, uh, I have a lot of like personal stuff that I, I would like to share. Uh, but so far I've, I've been quite of a you know, private individual. I, I've never been a big like social media guy or anything like that. Uh, but uh, yeah, I realized, that, you know, it's a good opportunity to, to explore other options and to sort of be more transparent as a person. Uh, it's better that way than to be too closed up and too private, and too personal, because then you're just limiting your options.
1: Yeah, um, Anna Marquez was on the podcast who actually referred you to me, and you know she was very vulnerable and talked about dealing with like depression uh, over a number of years, and was kind of anxious about the podcast coming out because it wasn't something she's talked about publicly. And you know, I just told her like. People love vulnerability because they relate to it because that's life. We all struggle. We all fail. We all, you know, life from the end viewed from the inside is uh, a series of defeats. It's a quote that I, um, I can't attribute to anybody right now because it's, I think it's George Orwell, but basically like he, it, the quote is, I never trust an autobiography full of positive things happening because everybody's perspective from the inside is just a series of defeats. And so that vulnerability is connection, Um, that's what really is compelling to the listener is hearing the struggles hearing because that that reflects their own internal state and how they go about life and how really all of us kind of go about life and yeah so you know basically anna just totally crushed it and very courageous and awesome human being and i think that like her being vulnerable was a blessing to the listener and Ultimately, I will say this about you know your ventures in content creation and YouTube. Follow what makes you happy too. You know, serving the audience is a major component. But one thing that I learned about like course creation was all the feedback for course creation that I've ever read, and I've paid lots of money to take multiple courses on making courses, which sounds funny, but that's a thing. Um, that's what the <laughs> that's what the nerds in this world do. Um, It's always about market research and what are people buying and what are people searching for what are people trying to find and i found myself i found that there was a disconnect between what i wanted to create and what people were searching for and at some point i just kind of gave myself permission to do what i thought was the best thing i could do and if nobody bought it nobody bought it but ultimately that giving myself permission to pursue things in that way was really one of the most freeing things that I've done as a creator. And as somebody who's just in a creative space, it's like, man, if I want to do something, like if you want to do something, just do it. Like, even if nobody's asking for it, even if people don't believe in it, if you really genuinely believe it's a great thing, just put it out there, follow your heart. And, um, ultimately you have to listen to your audience but you still get to do what you think is best regardless of market research regardless of the feedback that you get i just think that like that's how that's how you create things that have never existed before right like if you're always creating stuff that people are searching for where's the innovation where's the the stuff that people aren't asking for that will genuinely help them um so anyway that's just my what i've learned over my journey as a content creator and researcher and all these things is like If something is appealing to you and you think it's an awesome idea, then just fucking do it and see what happens. Um,
0: I think it's great advice. Um, I think it's important to be authentic and be yourself and be true to yourself. And that's sort of a benefit of being self-employed and your own boss. So you don't have anyone else to answer to other than yourself. So yeah, because I think... Your intention behind things also shines through your materials so if you're not being authentic like people people will spot that straight away i know i spot that straight away when i watch someone on youtube you know and uh, like you say like being vulnerable is something that's highly admirable and that people everyone can relate to because everyone everyone's vulnerable at some point um, in their life they just have different different struggles but so few of them are portrayed and and, and transparent and, and in social media and uh, even on YouTube and stuff. It's like everything is perfect all the time. But yeah, you know, you know that's not reality. And but it's it's sometimes hard to to grasp reality when all you see is is perfection.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's it's a distortion and it's not real and. The irony is that the best way to get ignored is to portray always that your life is perfect. And the best way to stand out is to talk about your shame, talk about where you're struggling, your weaknesses, where you're vulnerable. Like that's what, again, uh, that's what resonates with people. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for people who are struggling just like us. And what are they doing on it? How do they get out of bed despite all of these struggles? How do they move forward after a product just flops and they lose a ton of money or something happens, they get viciously attacked online and whatever, whatever the thing may be. Um, How do you keep picking yourself up after you get pushed down over and over and over and over again?
0: Yeah. What's ironic too, is that if you follow that path and, and that plan, then content creation becomes so much easier, right? Because everything you you produce is just natural. You're just being yourself. But if you're not being yourself, then you're an actor. Then if you're an actor, you need scripts. You need to portray yourself in a certain way. That's not you. So it becomes so much harder anyway, so...
2: Yeah. And
1: yeah. you said script. And I think that just there, <laughs> if, you, if you've if got to script all of your content creation on YouTube, you're, it's probably going to take you two years to come out with your first video. Um, I know that it would for me. It's just that is not the way that is not the way that I thrive. Um, and two, like, why do something if it's not authentically you? Why do something if it's not compelling? Like your spirit is not just gung ho. And let's do this thing. Like you're excited to do it um why spend your even if it would be successful that's not a life that really resonates with me being inauthentic day in and day out even if it's monetarily successful or build your brand or you get whatever prestige in the community you're aspiring to get prestige in um so yeah like for me it's just follow your bliss like joseph campbell says let the cards fall where they may and do the best that you can
0: Yeah, it's a slippery slope and so it's so important to start with the right intention because I think if you're exploring with not being authentic and you're you're starting to implementing a different persona, and then all of a sudden that gains traction and you're having success, then you're kind of oh shit. Now I have to continue this this route. And then you know, next thing leads to another and just escalates and gets out of hand, you know, and you get so attached to this that then all of a sudden that that's your identity and then maybe that wasn't the, the the original plan it was just like it started as a fun thing but now you're so connected to this this identity that you just can't separate like,
1: exactly the, su- the success just creates that you know it's it's a trap where the success creates that and then you feel like oh this is who i am and i can't be anything else i won't be accepted all these things and then yeah it's Living life like, as a as a human is, is tough. It's very tricky. <laughs> for sure, it's like ch- uh,
0: children that are actors. You know, their parents put them in, in acting school, and they become an overnight sensation, and they get all these roles. And like all of a sudden, they're an act- actor, and actress for the rest of their life. You know, it's not easy to break that
1: path either. No, and that is ultimately has led to lots of tragedy, and it, it's. I think we put a lot of pressure on our kids, way more pressure than we ought to as a society because you know, making a decision as to what you want to do forever when you're 12 years old, like man, that is that's so unfair and pretty much bullshit because who knows where you're going to be in 13 years when you're Brain is more fully matured, and you've had experiences, and you've learned about who you are. Right? Ultimately, the process is learning about who you are, and you don't know how who you are when you're a kid. You're just being a kid, and then even as an adult, like I think a lot of times we don't know who we are. Um, We're trying to figure it out, and then when you figure it out, you need to have permission to pursue what resonates with you and pursue that path, even if it means you know leaving your old identity behind and. Sometimes, like in your case, that identity is very, very strong, especially because you've had very, very public success in your field. It makes it much harder to unattach. Yeah, but even,
0: you know, I'm quite fortunate that I'm, I'm, I shouldn't really be that attached because I don't have, I could quit poker today, not play for a year and then come back in a year if I, you know, if I feel the urge again, mm-hmm. it's very easy. Like I have no contract or anything that that commits me to this thing whereas if imagine yeah you invested four years of your life in, in med school or law school and now all of a sudden you have hundreds of thousands in, in student debt or you even graduate and you start working as a as a lawyer or a or doctor or something and you have a million student debts and you realize that oh this is actually not what i want to do like what do you do I mean, are you going to change career paths and then gradually try to grind off this 1 million in debt that you acquired and wouldn't wasting six years in, in in law school for, you know, it's just like, that's, that's really tough in my opinion. Like if you find
1: yourself in that situation, then, it, ah, it, it could even be another path, right? It doesn't even have to be like that. That is obviously like just, Oh, I mean, it's, that's super, super tough. And, Another path is like you have a family and you have a high-paying job and a career and you're providing, but you realize that it's not happy. It doesn't make you happy. You're not fulfilled. What do you do when like you're the sole earner and your family's at risk if you choose a different career path? I mean, those things, you know, that's a terrifying proposition as well. For sure, and um, I mean,
0: in comparison, I'm super fortunate to not have any of those commitments. That's true. It's easy. (laughs) <laughs> you've be, got yeah.
1: it easy <laughs> I'm, I'm a bit spoiled that way <laughs> uh you're good it, it it's now that I think about it and it's framed in that way your your situation seems much easier compared to <laughs> compared to a lot of, a lot of situations that there could be especially you know just financial independence gives a lot of options just kind of in and of itself yeah. so let's transition to a little bit of lightning round here and before we wrap up uh if you could gift all poker players one book to read doesn't have to necessarily be about poker what would it be
0: it would be uh the art of learning by uh, josh uh, whiteskin
1: yeah it's i mean the, I, 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 yeah i was i talked about it like just i think two days ago with uh, another guest it's it's a great great book yeah I really enjoy that one, and I think a lot of
0: it uh, correlates a lot to poker as well. Like there's a lot of similarities with with his life and and, maybe not life, but like his mindset, you know, in chess, like the way the game is structured. Obviously, not as much variance, but uh, the way he thinks about performance and and, and the competitive nature of, of a very competitive environment
1: i think resonated very much with me yeah josh Waitskins, the man and i now that this has come up twice i feel like i'm getting a, a sign to reread the art of learning because i've probably read it three times so far and it, every time i go back and read it i'm always blown away by something new that i learned a new perspective something i can add to my life if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about poker what would it be? I would change the the bots and like the real-time system. That's a good one. That's, yeah, it's a... Yeah, eventually that's going to be the end of online poker. (laughs) It's existential. It's an existential threat. And I know that there are platforms that are spending tens of millions of dollars trying to improve security and all that stuff to kind of preemptively catch people but it's a struggle and it's something that like whenever these big problems like whenever i have an opportunity i think a lot about them and this is one i've thought a lot about and it is very very difficult for me to come up with any sort of good solution um, as it relates to botting and rta it's just it is a bad bad thing
0: no. right. This evolution is uh, sort of inevitable, but yeah, yeah I can
1: just fight it as long as they can.
0: <laughs> just and keep fighting
1: switch it. Switch the life poker. I, I think ultimately, ultimately the one thing that will really need to happen, especially like in the United States is severe penalties for people who are doing it, where, whether that's prison time, just something that is a significant, significant penalty that, dissuades most people from doing it i think that is i mean what else do you do like you can't w- when there's no downside to it of that's course one of, of yeah, course that's one of yeah that's one thing about the poker
0: world is always been extremely bad about the the repercussion of, of doing something unethical in the poker industry is extremely extremely low if you compare it to other industries
1: russ hamilton stole 70 million dollars <laughs> and dude is just out there in the world like didn't get in any trouble at all like yeah. what on earth
0: yeah there's hundreds of those you know people just walking the streets like that like, oh, guy yeah fucked up but and imagine the other one that got away with it, you know that's oh god that's the great, thing but even if you get caught like there's no there's no downside to it so like no wonder, like people take risk, and you know, criminals gets attracted to this lucrative and, and opportunistic market where you know you can just scam people left and right, and there there's no repercussion. No one's going to do anything about it. So,
1: yeah, yeah, it's it's a shame. It, it is a shame, and with so much money at stake, you know, it's just it, it, Russ Hamilton. That that whole thing always bugged me because, like, even back in the day, I thought, like, what if there's a smart Russ Hamilton? Like he was an idiot. Like he was stupid playing the biggest stakes and like calling down with whatever dying high, just make it it was so apparently obvious if he would have had, which actually makes me think way less of his poker game too, by the way, like how, how could you like, you're just, Oh, anyway, if it were me as Russ Hamilton will say, you just have the highest win rate at the biggest stakes and you make bad calls and you lose Right, you you just if there's somebody out there that was doing that, man, you'd never know. There's no way to catch them. You would never know. They would just be crushing for many many years, and they would always get away with it. Like the only reason Russ got caught was because the poker community investigated, and it was so obvious. In the same way that like Postle was obvious, right? Yeah, of course. Like there's a
0: bet for every for every idiot like that. There's you know way more smart people that are figuring this out than i hope
1: not i right. hope not yeah I, I mean one thing that i will say about scammers and somebody in like hamilton or the other one i just mentioned is a lot of times people choose to scam and cheat the system uh when they can't beat the system fairly or they don't want to invest the energy into learning how to beat the system, and so I think that's like one built-in advantage. There's not a lot of people who are like high-level players that also aspire to be master cheaters and thieves. So you know that that's a good like part to kind of break them up to where like okay, the people who devote their time to figuring out how to scam the system likely suck at poker, and because they suck at poker, they're not able to scam the system efficiently. Man, I hate saying those words, scam the system efficiently, but. Yeah, but it could also be a
0: case where a player has been at the top of the, the food chain for a while and then all of a sudden they realize they can't beat the game and then they're looking for shortcuts and, you know, you see... Yeah. <laughs> they, in fighting, for example, like uh, high competitive fighters uh, at the end, tail end of their career they start using steroids because they realize they can't keep up but they don't want to give it up, so...
1: I feel, you know... That's a weird steroid. The steroid conversation is really weird to me. L- looking back at like baseball in the 90s, um, I actually, so I I don't blame them for juicing. And I especially don't blame the people who are on the bubble, who's like worked their whole lives. And I, I just can't imagine working my whole life, seeing somebody that like I've always performed better than, all of a sudden they're getting a multi-million dollar contract over a number of years. And like, you know, in your heart, that like I am better than them and yet they're outperforming me and you're at risk of your career ending I think that is a really shitty spot to be in and so I don't really put I don't put a lot of blame in the folks that did choose to juice like in baseball in the late 90s cuz I mean that's their livelihood that was kind of at stake and obviously baseball didn't care enough to clean up the game and protect their careers so yeah it's it's just a very very appealing alternative yeah it's just tricky with you know cheating in
0: sports and it's also but i think you got to draw the line somewhere like in in fighting it's it's so different because you're you're actually trying to hurt your opponent uh, so you yeah. can generate more power <laughs> and be more efficient at it then that's very unfair and you can cause life-changing damage to your opponents, whereas a it's, you know, yeah, you, you hit the ball a bit longer than the, the other guy. Like, good for you. Like,
1: sure, it's unfair. For a what player. happens when you, you... can all kill
0: standpoint, like, that like guy get a better contract, but...
1: What happens when, when you're scouting your opponent out and dude's in the gym juicing, and you know it, right? Like, you know that that's what he's doing and that's what you're facing, right? I, I can see that as, like, what do you do? Like, do you do it? What do you, do you not it? do it? I um, uh, you call it? You well you call you nowadays, you call you nowadays, stuff. Stuff back, then, yeah, yeah. back then I'm saying like, you know, 10 or 50 before ultimately, ultimately the responsibility falls on the governing body of the competition to take care of this stuff. Don't leave it in the hands of the players because the players incentive is typically to get a new contract to win, to protect yourself, to perform at a high level, to win a championship. That's their incentive. And if you're not actively dissuading them, most likely there's going to be some shady shit that's going on just because they're incentivized to do so. So basically you just have to introduce, um, you have to disincentivize them through USADA and drug testing, and you have to bite the bullet and invest millions and millions of dollars into keeping your sport clean. I think that ultimately that's, that's, that's the only thing that can be done. Yeah. Like to go back to poker,
0: like this, I don't know. The only thing you can do really is obviously confiscate the money in the account, bad the account, but that person will always be able to access a new account.
1: Yep. Especially if it's like the app situation or something like it's. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. What a world. wild west. Yeah. That's not even like people called online poker in the early 2000s the wild west. Like that is, that is Mad Max, post apocalyptic. Yeah. Everybody for themselves, um, kind of crazy world. Yeah, it seems like a short-lived uh, sort of short-lived game and environment.
0: Like it's not going to last very not much longer. I think.
1: Yeah, we'll see. Uh, they again, uh, you know, there's is they're trying to make efforts to do a better job, but it's a, it's a it's an uphill battle, that's for sure. Um, if you could erect a billboard, every poker player has got to drive past on the way to the casino. What does your billboard say? More rake is better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I don't know.
0: Uh,
1: every poker player can read. God, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> more, more rake is better. Just making fun of the crowd. <laughs> yeah, just the the, the Negranu troll. uh um, yeah. never gets old. We'll accept it. Um, that's. It, it is still bizarre to me that that was. Anyway, that whole thing is bizarre to me, but that's <laughs> neither, that's either here nor there. Well, he got um, the challenge, huh? He got the challenge at the end,
0: so I guess it was worth. I think he spent five grand on the sign. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, what's a what's a project you're working on right now that's near and dear to your heart?
0: Before I uh, was venturing or decided I'm going to start a YouTube challenge, chat, <laughs> challenge I was writing a book i started writing a book in wow well, uh end of uh 2019 i've written by 50 60 pages so far so i haven't gotten very far but uh yeah it was something i was uh was very into for a while and now my my focus sort of shifted towards <laughs> the internet and like the new age uh Uh, With the YouTube channel, I realized that probably a lot more efficient way to go about it, to release videos rather than chapters. Second one would be coaching, uh, which we talked about earlier. You know, get a lot of enjoyment and and excitement from coaching and, and teaching up and coming players to get the results that, you know, hopefully similar results that I've had and be able to be part of that journey and, and contribute that way. Uh, so, what's your what's your book about? It's it's sort of a mixture of a biography, like my poker journey, my life, um, and the skill set it takes to be a great poker player, in my opinion. So, it's a lot about decision making and understanding um, risk managing risk, uh, taking risk, decision-making, pattern recognition, uh, peak performance. I have a lot of uh, interesting chapters uh, that I would like to explore, but since I haven't gone further with this book, you would have thought that 2020 would have been a great year to finish the book. (laughs) I realized that it might be, maybe it's not meant to be a book, maybe it's meant to be uh, something else but I know I have a lot of content that I'm excited about. What does your
1: heart about. tell you? What's your heart tell you, Martin? Would you rather, would you rather it be a book? Would you rather it be YouTube content? Or both?
0: Yeah, maybe both. Uh, I think starting I
1: think writing a book is, is a
0: massive massive project, uh, especially if you're not a writer, especially if your um, first language is in English. Uh, I was going to write in English as well. Um, so maybe I, I overestimated that, the challenge, um, uh, but I do, I did really enjoy writing. I think I'm a much better writer than I'm speaking. Uh, but that's also where I see the challenge in the YouTube uh, channel where I'm forced to speak and practice my, my speaking, my presence in front of camera and sharing that way rather. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's a better way to start, but yeah, the book is still there and who knows, maybe i pivot the idea and i come up with new ideas and um you know completely restructure it but yeah i still have those chapters and the the helpline
1: and, and yeah a few pages done or so we'll see yeah. the, the reason i ask is just it just seems like it matters to you right i think that like books specifically writing is so hard um i write a daily newsletter uh and it takes me like an hour to 2 hours to just write 500 words a day on telling some sort of new story and tying it in to what's going on with chasing poker greatness and it's difficult man it, writing is just it's such a cognitively draining activity and the process of like editing fixing things structuring them differently in a way that makes sense but ultimately the reward is so great when you know you, you do a thing and it makes sense. And then like the feedback is people enjoy it and you're really helping to improve people's lives. And I think that probably ultimately what will happen is you build your YouTube channel uh, based on the stuff that you're writing about. And then when you write the book, you'll have a naturally built in audience of people that will want to buy the book. And so it kind of just naturally uh, feeds into one another. And then once people get read the book, that haven't heard of your youtube channel they find you that way too so it just kind of goes back and forth and helps to build the stuff that you're building grow your audience and really just impact more people
0: yeah exactly i want to create a funnel between all my projects uh and just sort of enlighten them in, in one one lifestyle and one one
1: project um cool man if you need any help feel free to ask at any point i ho- I assume you're you're building a team for these endeavors because this is something that I think requires uh an intelligent group of people. Um I know that like there I have a lot of holes as it relates to the things that I'm good at or want to do. Um and one one thing that if I could go back in time would be to find people who kind of offset my own deficiencies. Uh but yeah, man, I, I'm excited to see what you come up with. It you're you're an amazing human being. You've obviously accomplished a ton in the world of poker. And I can't wait to check out your YouTube channel and be inspired. And um yeah, the, the final question here before we sign off will be where can the chasing poker greatness audience find you on the World Wide Web? Well, first of all, thank you for for having me. It was great chatting
0: with you. Um people can find me on uh... My website, martinjacobson.pro, on, on Twitter, martin underscore uh, jacobson, uh, Instagram, and yeah, hopefully soon my YouTube channel, which will be martinjacobson.
1: Awesome. And when this episode launches, your YouTube channel ought to be up, and I will put the click-through link in the show page. Thank you very much once again, my friend. I'm very grateful for your time, energy. I really enjoyed our talk. Thanks, man. It's good being here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.